Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 197 with Joe Saul Sihai. You know, the charming voice talent says that this podcast will help you have more career fun, wins, meaning, and money. And we've had very few episodes all about money, but this is one of them. So you're going to learn one, the first key to making more money, two, important benefits you might have overlooked, and three, the top money management lesson that rich people use. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items referenced here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep197. Now, here's Joe's story. Before starting Stacking Benjamins, Joe Saul Sihai was a financial planner for 16 years and a media representative for one of the nation's largest financial companies. He leads a team of people who are located across the United States. He communicates difficult concepts in a way that makes them accessible, and I might add hilarious, to the average person. He also gives presentations at major companies and to large audiences. Joe is a huge fan of exceptional customer service and loves to model companies like Disney, Nordstrom, and Cherry Republic. So thanks to Joe for taking some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Working remotely can be a challenge, especially for teams that are new to it. How do you deal with your work environment being the same as home while staying connected and productive? And then there's your newest coworker, the cat. Well, your friends at Trello have been powering remote teams globally for almost a decade. At a time when teams must come together more than ever to solve big challenges, Trello's here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Trello keeps everyone organized and on the same page, helping teams communicate, focus, and connect. Teams of all shapes and sizes at companies like Google, Fender, Costco, and likely your favorite neighborhood coffee shop all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Now, here's Joe. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I can't believe I made it. Am I really here? You're really here. You made it. That's fantastic. Good work. Well, so, you know, you've made it a number of places on your career journey, and I know you could probably regale us with some tales, but just to get oriented and have some laughs along the way, could you give us maybe the three-minute version of your career journey from DJ to financial planner to right now? <laughs> right. So we went to this wedding when I was 16 years old and my dad was drunk, which doesn't happen a lot, and the disc jockey really stunk. And he did something really cool, and I think this is cool for for uh, anybody who's a parent out there listening. He said, you know what? I think you and your brother could do a better job at this, and if you guys write up a business plan, and he taught us how to write a business plan. He financed our operation, and for 10 years, I disc jockeyed weddings, fraternity parties. We had uh, three systems at one point. Um and and so I learned how to be comfortable in front of groups of people, which was important throughout my career. I think it's important for anybody. I love Toastmasters mm -hmm. uh, for that reason. But when I first became a financial planner, DJing had nothing to do with it. I was actually an English major in college, and I was not doing very well at my own personal financial situation. But I had a friend who worked at a financial firm who said, quote, this is a quote, we normally don't hire people like you, but I think you'd be good at this. Okay. Because of, because 
because of the fact that it, had I not been a farm kid who uh, didn't know anything what an engineer was, I totally have an engineer personality. Uh, I'm curious. I want to know how things are. I would constantly, during my first year as a financial planner, take books to the bathroom with me. It's kind of gross, but it was those few minutes that I had where I could learn. And every meeting I went into, there was something I didn't know, and I would go teach myself that thing. So I would never be without that piece of information again. And then I could talk about money in a way uh, that most people understand money. We're all making the same mistakes with our cash. We all, I got to see, you know, 200 families I was working with for 16 years. And I got to see so many people behind the curtain that nobody else gets to see. None of us know what's going on. We're all messing it up. <laughs> and I could talk like another guy that came from that place originally. But at age 40, I had this mentor who, uh, who one day quit. And in my job, when you quit, Pete, you don't tell everybody you're quitting. You take the files, like if you remember the movie Jerry Maguire, uh -huh. you take the files and at midnight you leave and then everybody starts calling the client. Well, <laughs> this guy left our financial firm and he, he gave two weeks notice and said, listen, I'm working 14 hours uh, uh, at a time. I really I'm putting in these monster weeks. I like financial planning. I don't love it. And I'm working too much to discover what I really love. And I've been lucky enough to put away some savings. And I'm going to go figure out what other mountains there are to climb, which was powerful for me at a landmark year like 40 to have that happen uh, to somebody close to me. And he actually went and climbed Mount Everest twice. So when he said mountains to climb, he really meant it. For me, I looked at that figuratively. I had I had two uh, young kids. I had twins. Um, I I had built a big business, uh, not a huge business, but a big business that was sellable. So I sold it at forty, and I actually went to become a high school teacher and a track coach. Huh. And while I was in classes learning how to become a high school teacher. I was pretty bored with school and my classes kept telling me how tough being a teacher was going to be. I feel, you know, I, I love teachers and the job they do, but we all know how tough it is uh, and how the education system doesn't work the way that it should. And so I realized I've been teaching people a lot about money. That was my favorite part of the job. So I established the thing that later on became the Stacking Benjamins podcast uh, where I get to teach people about money my way. Oh, that's great. So Stacky Benjamins, it's about teaching money your way. And what does that mean, you know, in terms of the flavor or vibe that uh, we'll get over there? Well, don't tell anybody this. Okay. And I know nobody <laughs> listens to the show. So this is our, this is our secret. Oh, that's cold, Joe. You don't have to rub <laughs> in that your numbers are better than mine. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. We joke about that with our show, that we have these secrets. But our show is based on the science of play. And the reason I, I say don't tell anybody that is because we never talk about that on the show. What we talk about is if you learn anything listening to Stacking Benjamins, keep it to yourself. Because I believe that if it's playful and if you don't think that you're learning and you're instead having a good time, you're going to learn a ton of stuff. So instead of trying to be Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman, some big names in the financial world, I decided that we wanted to be the first word. And I modeled the show a lot in tone after car talk. And uh -huh. for people that don't know car talk, it's this NPR show that was very popular for a long time. These guys click and clack. One of them passed away recently, but they still air old episodes. And you know, Pete, you listen to the show and you think you're not learning anything about cars because you're just having a good time listening to these guys who love cars. And so we decided we'd do the same thing with money and stacking Benjamins. And that's what we try to do. We try to have a lot of fun and we, we really try not to teach anything, but we want to show you in a very simple way where some places are to start. 
Oh, that's cool. That's cool, Joe. Well, now I want more play in my <laughs> podcast world. At the same time, I'm also so into, I really am, I'm into the how to be awesome at your job. And I want every last delicious drop of, of insight oh uh, from every guest. So you're on the spot, Joe. You're on under the pressure cooker. Sweating already. Yeah. So well, that's fun. Thank you so much for sharing. And so now let it begin. You know, the interrogation commences. All right. So it's funny, we've deliberately not talked to, you know, financial people, but uh, you made it sound so fun and you made it really connected to, to work and how, you know, good work can lead to money, which leads to enjoying your work more and life more. And so I think that's just a bullseye for what we're about this time. So could you maybe, you know, lay it out for us from what you've seen amongst clients and all of your vantage points, you know, what are some of the best ways professionals can upgrade their game at the workplace in ways that ultimately show up in terms of their money, their compensation. Yeah, I think and I would help people with this. And I think a lot of financial professionals don't do this and they probably should. I felt like I was my client's agent and there's there's two halves of your of of the equation, right? Make more money and watch how you spend that money. So make more money, I think, starts off with something that this management guru I followed for a long time. Tom Peters is his name. All right. A lot of people might not be familiar with Tom Peters. If you like Tom Peters, by the way, or if you've never heard of him and you're going out to discover Tom Peters, who has a lot of great writing. Uh, you have to be okay with the F-bomb. I just got to say that right away because Tom Peter swears a ton. <laughs> it's so funny because I read In Search of Excellence. I thought, oh, this is very professional. And, <laughs> and yeah. then I saw an interview. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He gets that feedback all the time. But he's got a great book over 20 years old called The Pursuit of Wow. And in that book, it was the first time I was introduced to this concept of a waiter shows up at work and and you think to yourself whenever you go, no matter what your job is, you want to think to yourself, what do I need to know? What is it that I don't know about my job that I really need to know to be better? Stop thinking that the trainers at work are the ones who are responsible for training you on your career. Obviously, people are listening to this podcast nodding their head because the reason they're listening to you, Pete, is because they want to be better at their job. But I think this idea of taking control, not enough people do, and they feel like they stink because they don't get enough training. Forget the people you work for. Forget the company you work for. Think of yourself as a free agent. And as a free agent, how can I make more money? I can make more money by being so good at my job that people can't ignore me. And if my current company is ignoring me, guess what? There's other people out there that won't ignore me. And I think that's the key to the whole thing, that when you set your own training program up to win, uh, I think that's the first key to making more money. Okay. So you're just getting really clear on the answers to the questions. What do I need to know? in order to be awesome, you know, in this role? And then how do you just go about acquiring that knowledge is kind of like the one-two punch there. Absolutely. So it depends on how you learn, right? I mean, for people listening to this show, it's things like listening to this podcast. But, you know, a lot of the time, so I listen to, to, to two different types of podcasts. I listen to podcasts to learn. I listen to podcasts for entertainment. And one of, another favorite book I have is by a guy, Austin Kleon, uh, who wrote Steal Like an Artist. And he talks about taking things that are fun that are in your life and adding those to the equation. So as an example, when it comes to what I do, a money podcast, people People would never think that, oh, why would you have fun with a money podcast? In fact, if you ever read any of the negative criticism about my show, it's, it's that we goof around too much. Uh -huh. And yet those people are missing the point of 
this whole science that's behind our show. I mean, I, I don't want to stink at my show. I don't want my show to just be goofy for no reason. It's goofy because when you look at the science of play, that's how people learn. So, uh, so it's, it, it's podcast, it's reading, taking stuff to the bathroom. It's deciding which voices you hear from most. So, so I think there's two sides to the equation. There's who are the best teachers Mm-hmm. And there's how do I as an individual learn? And I think if you can put those two things together so that you get more signal and less noise, you're more likely to be successful. Okay. I like that. I dig it. And so then I'd love to get some perspective there. You, you talked about the books and the podcasts and the resources. It, I'd also like to get your take on how do you gather the true answer to the question, you know, what do I need to know here? Because what's intriguing is, for example, I'm thinking about Buddy, who's a lawyer. And his impression in the early days of law school, or just out of law school, rather, was that being an awesome lawyer is about crafting the most beautifully written, argued motions and submitting them to the judges. He's like crafting, you know, works of art. And he said, this is an outstanding motion and I am crafting it and therefore I am an outstanding lawyer. But he learned pretty quickly that that really wasn't <laughs> what made for an outstanding lawyer over there, which was rather kind of about billable hours and serving clients well and quickly and, and a caseload. And in fact, creating these masterful briefs was kind of contrary to what winning meant there. And so I'd love it if you can shed some light on best practices for uncovering in the first place, the true, what do I need to know? Well, for me, it's something that's very difficult, was very difficult. It's not difficult for me anymore, but it was difficult at the start. I very much am a bull in the china shop. I believe what I believe, and I believe it very strongly. I have a Gordon Ramsay personality in a lot of ways. Um, uh, Simon Cowell, you know, for people mm-hmm. that remember him. I mean, he's just a little... <laughs> Yeah, but you know what's funny, Pete, is that you nod your head, right? Whenever he would give his advice to the person, you go, oh, yeah, I believe that. Boy, I would never tell that person that, but they totally (laughs) do that better. So, But I believe that we need that person in our corner. And as somebody who has been formerly a money coach for people, I have a coach in my corner. Her name's Mary Lou. Mary Lou thinks about the world a lot differently than I do. And I try to surround myself with people who are alpha people like uh, I feel like in a lot of situations I am who look at the world differently than I do. I look at the world very much glass half full. Mary Lou looks at the world glass half empty. I look at opportunities. She looks at problems. And so when Mary Lou and I meet three times a month and we're looking at my business, she's looking at a piece of the business that I'm not. And she asks me questions about my blind side. And I think having somebody who can make me more well-rounded to see the things that I wouldn't more naturally see myself is, is a huge part of winning. You know, we all like feeling great about ourselves um, and having people around us who are yes men, so to speak, uh, who say, oh yeah, Joe, you're fantastic. I want somebody who's going to tell me, no, Joe, you're really messing this part of your game up and you need to do a better job. Um, I think, I think we all do better when we have that person in our corner. I think that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that kind of is the knowledge acquisition piece of things. And so, so let's say, you know, you went and did it. Nice work. You learned what needed to be learned and you're crushing it. You know, what would you say are some of the tactical things a person in that position should be, you know, thinking about or executing in order to seek the promotion to get the raise? 
You know, to get the promotion, I think there's two things involved. Number one is you've got to be good at your job. But number two, and this is the sad thing, is that you have to be a cheerleader. And a lot of people that are great at their job that I know uh, think, well, if I just keep doing a better and better job, my boss is going to know it, right? And a lot of times your boss might know it, but your boss also isn't the one with the purse strings, especially in a bigger company. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I have to give my boss enough ammunition to be able to tell their bosses exactly why I deserve more money, why I deserve the promotion and why I deserve the raise. Uh, so I want to come armed to my boss and not just at my review, even though there's lots of studies that I, and I know, you know, all these studies already that show that like the six weeks leading up to your review is the most important time. And that's the piece that your boss actually remembers. Mm -hmm. But I want to be continuously bringing them facts and figures about stuff that I've done that are over and above the call of duty. So using places like Glassdoor to find out or, or the Department of Labor website to to find out what people around me are being paid. Uh, I want to know that information. I want to know what I'm doing versus what the average person is doing in my role that is more important and is bringing more to the bottom line of that company than anybody else is bringing. Um, you know, facts and figures work. Emotions really don't work. If I go into my boss and I say, you know what, Pete, I really need more cash because I've got twins at home and college ain't cheap, baby. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I need more money, which I've had people, when I manage people in the past, I've had people make that raise pitch to me before. And I think, I'd love to give you more money. If I were made of money, I would I would love to absolutely do it. I personally, believe it or not, as a money guy, I'm not mo money motivated. I love sharing the wealth with, with my team and with the people around me. But you've got to bring to me exactly what the stats are and why you're going to add more if I pay you more. Okay, cool. And so could you maybe give us an example in which someone put that package together and they made a compelling case that made you go, yep, it's yours. Well, I'll tell you, I had an engineering client that I totally helped do this. And he he went to, uh, he was in a, a small niche place of engineering, which was sound design. This is actually kind of cool. And I know we probably don't have time for this, but his job, you know, when you close a car door and it has a sound to it, mm -hmm. his job was to make the car door sound more confident. So if you're test driving a car, <laughs> you you felt like it was put together better. Confident. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that cool? I thought that's just such a great job that there's people that oh, actually wow. make things sound better. I thought it just was what it was like, given the shapes of this car, this is what it will sound like when you close it. But no, someone's working on that. Someone's absolutely <laughs> making it sound. Yeah. And you know, like the spitting noise on a Harley Davidson, like they have engineers that make it spit the way you think it's supposed to spit so that it, so that you're more likely to buy it. But anyway, so that, so that's his job. So, so he went and looked, he was making $85,000 a year at the time. Now these are older numbers because I've been out of the field for eight years, but he was making $85,000 a year. I told him, let's go look for, let's go look and see what other sound design people around him are making. And it turned out that the average person with his experience doing what he was was doing was making about, they were making about $95,000. And yet some of the things, the specific skills that he brought to the table for his boss and he was doing on their team, when we looked at the average person, they weren't doing those specific things. He had, he had two different computer um, platforms that he had experience in that the average person didn't have experience in. So he was able to go to his boss 
and tell his boss, listen, I know the average person is making 95,000. I'm already doing these things for you, which I think is worth more than that on the open market. I'm hoping at the very least you can bring me up to 95,000 bucks. The cool thing was his boss bought him up to 92,000. The better thing was though, was that once my client knew exactly what the market was, he actually made a move to another company up to 114,000 um, and was able, so he's able to get a nice pay raise just by knowing what the market bore. Excellent. That's so good. And so when you're making the actual request, you're bringing, you know, the facts in the argument to bear. Any other sorts of finishes or polishes that you want to consider in presenting that as effectively as possible? Well, I think there's something to remember, which happened to me. One of the best things ever that happened to me was I got fired from a job. And if you've never been fired, uh, it is, it's a remarkable experience that changes the trajectory of your career. If you're, if you're open to that, right. It's, it's humbling and horrible. I thought for a while that I was smarter than my boss. And frankly, I probably was, Mm -hmm. but the bad news was what I didn't realize was that my boss was the one that was in charge. And my job is to make my boss look look good and to have my bosses back. So I know we have an HR segment on stacking Benjamins and a lot of the letters that people send in are all about bad. Well, you, I'm, I'm singing to the choir here, man. The uh, There's so many people out there that are working for bad bosses. You just remember your boss is the one that's going to have to make that decision. Because when I, when I got canned, I realized that uh, I didn't get canned because I didn't know what I was doing. I got canned because my boss really didn't like me and because I continued continually told her that I was way smarter than she was. And it was, that was a bad tactic. Okay. Noted. <laughs> Do's and don'ts. We got a clear right. don't. <laughs> right, right. All right. So don't do that. And anything else with regard to the communication itself or should we move on? I think really that's what I bring to the table. Remember who's in charge and then bring facts, not emotions. And I think you're going to be better off than most people asking for a raise. Oh, there is one more thing. Oh, good. But man, we had statistics about this just recently. Uh, there was a study. I'm not going to get the name of the study right now. Most people don't ask. Oh. Most people never ask for a raise. You, you, you have to make it clear that you're asking for more money. Yes. Cool. Well, so, and also when it comes to asking for more money, you know, there is the salary component, which is, you know, conspicuous and front and center right there. But, you know, when it comes to your overall financial health and well-being, the benefits side of things can be also quite impactful. Are there any sort of just no duh things we should be doing with regard to looking at our benefits and getting those working for us? Oh, I've got a bunch of these. This is fun. See, this is where we can geek out on some financial stuff because you're right. Most people don't even look at their benefits package. When we ask them how much they make, they know what their take home is. They know what their overall salary, but man, that benefits package can add a lot to the equation. So, um, uh, let's start with accidental death and dismemberment insurance. A lot of businesses have this coverage. Great place to start. I always say that. (laughs) That's right where you want your podcast to start. You know, you should title this episode that I'm sure that's going to bring in listeners. Yeah. (laughs) 
but I see, you know, I would look at somebody's package and they, they have accidental death as dismemberment insurance. And this is insurance where if you put your hand in a piece of heavy machinery or you lose an eye, maybe you'll get two times, three times this, this X amount of money. Well, most people listening to this probably don't do that. So if you're somebody that does put your hands in heavy machinery or you have a dangerous job, accidental death and dismemberment insurance might be important, but you know, what's more important disability coverage. And so what I would often do when I was a financial planner is I would recommend that people cut out the accidental death and dismemberment insurance, go to the max on their uh, disability coverage and end up with insurance that fits your lifestyle much, much better than, uh, than having both of those. Uh, if people have legal, I would see company companies would offer legal coverage, sign up for it for one year, have an attorney do your estate plan for much, much, much less money than you can get it done retail. And then unsign up the next year when you don't need anymore, because you don't have to go redo your will every single year. So I like, I like that one. And then, you know, a lot of people, uh, have now HSAs, these health savings accounts that are attached to their health insurance. And if you're somebody who's healthy, a lot of people think, well, I don't, I don't really need to save into that HSA. I'll tell you what's cool. The HSA, the way the rules work, you can pack money into that. And essentially after you get to retirement age, that money is just like additional retirement savings. And so there's a, there's not that many restrictions on getting at the money when you get into retirement. So packing money into an HSA, if you have it available, is a great way to get more money saved and maybe retire early. Oh, that's cool. So you're saying the HSA is a sneaky means by which we might exceed, say, a 401k or a Roth. Or You're saying the yes. maximum is bigger than what the maximum yes. might be. Yes, absolutely. And I that's cool. see people that, that contribute to the two of those plans, like a Roth and to a, to a 401k, and they have this HSA that's empty. And they're like, oh, where do I save more? Great spot. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right. So now let's talk then on the flip side. You know, I think that when I am chatting with folks about their career options and maybe the jobs or roles that they would like, you know, it's interesting. I see that a lot of people, they'll say they require a minimum salary and it's great to, you know, have standards and goals and such. But on the flip side, you know, sometimes there are really cool great fitting roles, which don't happen to have as delicious a salary attached to them. There might be in the nonprofit or artistic kinds of spaces, which may be less lucrative, but more of a, something that lights you up. So I mean, you've got some compelling stuff about like saving 50% of income. And so I would love to hear what might be some of your top cost-cutting moves that could enable some listeners here to maybe entertain forbid I even say it, entertain <laughs> taking a role that has less compensation, but more happiness for them. You know, I love the fact that we talk about this second, because when we talk about money, most people start here with uh, cutting the budget. And there's this awesome quote, and I don't know who said it. I, I wish I had a machine where I could look that up, Pete, who said this, <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's, uh, you can't shrink your way to greatness. And I totally agree with that. Let's look at income first and expand that. And then uh, I love taking on stuff that uh, maybe pays less, but that you're passionate about. So it all comes down to decisions and priorities. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a guest recently, this financial writer, Anna Davies on the Stacking Benjamin Show, and she saved $15,000 a year just by getting more organized. And what's cool was every single thing that she talked about was just a little thing. And the biggest one 
the biggest one of all, believe it or not, was just looking at the subscriptions, the automatic subscriptions yeah. she has and cutting some of those. And what's, what's a pain in the butt. Most people go, Oh, I got to look through my bank statement. I got all this stuff. I, uh, I'll do that later. Well, what's cool is there's a couple apps you can use, which will do it very quickly. And not only will they do it quickly, they will also, if you give them permission, they will cancel it for you. So they'll tell you every single subscription you have. And they'll ask you, do you want us to cancel this for you? And you say, yes, yes, yes. And boom, they're gone. And one of them is called Clarity Money. And Clarity Money does a lot of the same stuff that a lot of people have heard of Mint.com, where you can look at a snapshot of your life at one one spot. Clarity Money does that, but they also do subscriptions. So I really like that one. If you just want the subscription part, there's a startup that Ashton Kutcher, actually, the, the actor, he is a big time backer of, and it's called Ask Trim. So the app is called Trim. And if you look up Ask Trim, uh, look up that app, you'll find that they will cut all your subscriptions for you. So for her, that was $450 a month. Oh, wow. Four fifty. That's a that's just a ton of money. She she said one of the subscriptions was to a dating service, and she has a, a young baby. She's like, I haven't I haven't dated in like eighteen months. Yeah. <laughs> so that's two hundred and fifty dollars a year just by getting rid of the dating service she's not using. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay. So boom, you can accelerate your savings by zeroing in on these subscriptions. Maybe you have even forgotten about them, and so there's quick money to be acquired there. What are some of your other favorite moves? Oh man, I absolutely love looking at your tax refund uh, because of the fact that what do most people do? They get this big fat tax refund at the end of the year and they blow it on something that was inconsequential that they don't remember two months later. Well, you can get that money in your paycheck instead and save it. So if you're getting a $2,500 tax refund, let's say every year, uh, go to HR and have them and work with them on changing that up. So you get all that money in your paycheck. Now you and I know that if you get that money in your paycheck, what you're going to do with it. Instead of blowing it at the end of the year, you're just going to blow it every month, right? Mm -hmm. So what we do, I like taking your money and having it sent to a savings account. Now, most people use direct deposit, but when they use direct deposit, they don't use it. They don't use it uh, in a way that helps them build cash. So let's direct deposit, but instead of direct depositing to your checking account, direct deposit to a savings account. And I like direct depositing to a savings account that's kind of out of reach. And when I was a financial planner, we would use a savings account that was like across town and we would get rid of the ATM card, get rid of the check so that if you really had an emergency, you had a couple choices. You could drive across town and get it, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could find a different way. And what's funny is if we set up these conditions for our brain where we have to think about something, a lot of the time, the easy solution of I'll just whip out the debit card goes away and we find other ways around that. But then what we do is we then have a second deposit because banks are happy to do this that goes between that savings account and our checking account. So now instead of spending every dollar that comes in and going, oh crap, I'm out of money. Instead, I, I have my direct deposit from work go to the savings and then I have a different number, whatever I need to live. I have that go into my checking account every month. So I'm paying myself a different number than what the company's doing. And essentially what I've done is I've changed it. So now my lifestyle is not exactly what the company's paying me and my my salary at work isn't dictating my life. I'm dictating my life. I'm the one in charge of how much money I spend. I know how much money that is. And it's not because I got a 5% raise, I spend 5% more money. I decide when I give myself a lifestyle raise. Oh, I love that so much. And with that automation, it's amazing how you can just entirely forget about it. 
And when you look at it, it's like, oh, hey, cool. There's a bunch of money I have. That's mine. <laughs> right. Especially if somebody here listening is uh, gets a commission, because especially my clients with a commission, they live on this boom bust lifestyle mm-hmm. where, you know, they're eating ramen, 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 bam, big steak dinner, big screen TV, ramen, ramen, ramen. Right. Yeah. If you do it this way, the company pays that big commission into that savings account and then you can slowly dole it out. So instead of having this boom bust lifestyle, you can live on the same amount every month or every paycheck. So you're saying HR can handle this level of sophistication such that they say, hey, you give me this many dollars in my checking every, you know, two weeks or twice a month. And then you put all other dollars that are due to me over here in the savings. And they'll just do that for you. Oh, they won't. Okay. Well, yeah, they might. I wouldn't trust them to do that. Right. They'll mess that up. Here's what I would do. I would send it all to that savings account. Okay. Just trust HR to get it all into one account. And then the bank. I'm with you. That's better. With the bank, have an automatic transfer, you know, whatever, if it's weekly, monthly, biweekly, whatever you want to do, they'll do it because they want you to keep your money with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, have them transfer it over. That makes way more sense. Thank you. But so the HR request is just for sort of like the tax situation. Yeah. For the tax situation, say, you know what, I'm getting a $2,500 refund. How do I fix my withholding? So I no longer get that. I don't want to owe. Yeah. I don't want to owe, but how do I make it? And and they'll help you play with it. And the bad news is, I mean, we could go into it, but it's a little more art than science and you might have to change it a few times, but you mm-hmm. can get it fairly close. Certainly. And then there may be changes like Illinois just increased their right. state income taxes on us. So, you know, it happens. Okay. So good. All right. So we talked about bringing in more income. We talked about reducing expenses. And so tell me, Joe, once we have this pile of cash that's building up, what are some of your favorite perspectives in terms of deploying that in terms of smart investing? You know, I think that uh, investing is such a difficult place to talk about because of the fact that there's, it, it, it all depends on where we start from, right? If we, if we're starting from ground zero, I'm just like my, my daughter just graduated from college. Now she literally last weekend, we moved her to Kansas city. She starts her new job next week. She's starting from zip. And then there's people out there that already have some savings. So I'll give you kind of the pyramid of where we start and people can figure out where they fit on that, on that pyramid. The, the, the first thing to do is to make sure that you have money in an emergency spot because if you, and and people don't like me to say that by the way, because the first thing somebody's doing right now is they're yelling at their device going, I have credit cards at 18% or 21%. I'll pay those first because money in a savings account earns what? I mean, if I'm getting a top rate, maybe, you know, 1%, um, maybe Mm -hmm. a little higher than that. Uh, if you're at a brick and mortar bank, it's going to be half that. So that sounds stupid. Why would I set an emergency fund aside and not put it all toward my credit card? Well, here, here's what I would always see that would happen. Pete, people go along, they're putting every extra dollar they have toward that credit card, never put any money in savings. And then their mufflers drag it behind their car. Guess where they got to go then for money. They got to go right back to the credit card. And you'll see these people that get so used to that behavior of whipping out the credit card every time they need money that they end up doing it more often. And I, we want to get rid of that. We want to, you know, there's the, there's the, the leaves and then there's the root of the problem. The mm-hmm. root of the problem is you get used to that motion of flipping out that credit card and we got to get used to cash instead at first. So uh, what I like doing 
is I like putting money in savings, get used to when there's emergency, mufflers dragging behind my car, I go to that savings account. And then as I'm paying off debt, I'm paying it off a little more slowly. But guess what would always happen? The debt would be paid off and it gets paid off uh, for good and we don't have to worry about it anymore. So I like number one, emergency fund. Number two, I like paying off debt. We can talk about how to do that if you'd like, but generally starting with higher, the highest interest rate and working down, not always the best way to go, but that's a great place to start. And then when you start investing, you know, studies show that, that these active managers out there trying to beat the market, that they have a really tough time doing that. There are people that do that, but, but predicting who's going to do it next year is the, is the difficult thing. So instead of playing that game, there's mutual funds and exchange traded funds that buy the in indexes like the S&P 500 index or the total market index and if you can put money into those to start with based on your time frame i think that's a great place to start is with an index fund or two and then get more you know then get tricky from there it doesn't have to be complicated to win with money mhm okay sounds good sounds good and recently i saw you did a little summary tidbit insight from, you know, 500 episodes, some huge money lessons. Is there any huge money lesson that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention right now before we hear about some of your favorite things? I had a really, really wealthy person tell this to me, not early in my career, but early enough that I realized that, that this was, this was so, it, and, and I saw over and over, everybody thinks that great money management is about discipline, right? I got to get more discipline in my money. You look at your bank statement, like, oh, if I had some discipline, I didn't buy that stuff. It's not about discipline. Nobody has discipline. The people that are really knocking it out of the park with their money, those people are people that have automation. And so what they do is they, they, are smart enough to, to recognize when they make a brilliant flipping move, right? <laughs> and then when they make that brilliant move one time, instead of trying to remember to do that over and over again, which is what most of us do, they figure out how to automate that so that brilliant move happens on its own over and over. So what we talked about, about setting up your direct deposit the right way, about uh, having money go automatically into your HSA, about maybe having, you know, the right, the right uh, um, uh, uh, budget and using some of these apps that will look at your stuff for you. The more we can automate great stuff and the less we think about it, the more we can think about the thing that we can drive and the thing that we can most drive is making more money. And so the stuff that you and I talked about early on about getting a bigger paycheck, getting a raise, uh, that stuff, if we can focus on that and our money takes care of itself on the back end, that's when you're really kicking ass. Okay, cool. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, my favorite quote is uh, from Nike. It was the quote that they had before, just do it. Uh, just do it resonates with me, but I love this one. It, they said, feel the fear and do it anyway. I'm a guy who feels a lot of fear. I'm constantly afraid of the next thing. I, I, I always think, oh, this is going to be so tough. And you know what? Once I do it, it's much better. So I'm constantly telling myself that mantra, feel the fear and do it anyway. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Oh, I love that book I referenced earlier, The Steal Like an Artist, Austin Kleon. I've got the biggest crush on Austin Kleon's work. I think it's so easy to read. And I think that uh, if you're stealing stuff the right way, everything you do informs your work. I mean, you know, I, my podcast is a collection of eight of my favorite podcasts. And I've stolen them in a way where I really haven't stolen them. I've taken the stuff that I've liked and I've made it mine. And I think no matter what your career is, if you find people that inspire you and things that you that inspire you, steal it. 
it. Don't plagiarize, but incorporate it. Mm-hmm. I dig it. And how about a favorite tool? This is funny. This is the question I sweated over. Isn't that funny? Because well, I appreciate people, you sweating and, and prepping. <laughs> <laughs> people like you and I, we use all kinds of tools. And I'm like, oh, which one do I like the best? You know what I like? I use a Mac. I like the Do Not Disturb option on my computer um, because. Uh, multitask. I, I have ADD in a bad way. And man, when I shut off my notifications, I shut off all my notifications and I can focus on the task at hand and really get into it. I get much, much more done. So my favorite tool, the do not disturb option on my computer. Oh, thank you so much. You know, my phone defaults into do not disturb. It's so awesome. And it's so funny. Whenever I hear a ding, I'm like, what's happening? This shouldn't be <laughs> the case. This is wrong. And it's... <laughs> You know, my wife just accepts that she has to call me twice in order for it to ring through, as does my mother. I love these women very much, <laughs> you know, but it's so true. If I get distracted, it really does take me a good 12 minutes to be like, wait, what were we doing? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. I was deep in a profound yeah. place of creativity. That's right. That's what I was doing. Cheryl says to me all the time, my spouse, she says, don't you ever answer your phone? No, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I don't. Okay. So turn on do not disturb in the... Notification center. Okay, I did that. And that's awesome. Cool. Thank you. You just transformed my life. Look at you. <laughs> that's my, my job here's done. Okay. Okay. Almost. I, I know you've got more. So <laughs> yeah. I know it's not done. And how about a favorite habit? You know, I like to procrastinate as much as the next person. Rick Patino, uh, the coach at uh, Louisville, I heard him speak once and he had this great piece of advice, exercise first thing in the morning because your brain doesn't know what the hell you're doing. And if I can have my running shoes on and I'm out there doing it before my brain wakes up, it, my whole day's awesome after that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget that you share that gets folks really kind of nodding their heads, taking notes, resonating? I've been sharing this a lot lately, Pete, which is lately I've lost 30 pounds. I've run 11 marathons. I'm signed up for number 12 and number 13. And I've, I've, I'm finishing my book and I'm this massive action guy. And I've always been an active guy, but right now I'm massive action. And people ask me what that's all about. I was having a discussion with my, with my coach, Mary Lou, who I referenced earlier. And we got on this topic and I don't know who brought it up, but it really resonated with me, which was write your own story we're all waiting, me included, for the perfect time to start. Like I'm thinking that I'm always prepping for that perfect time, right? And I thought, that that's crap. It Now's the perfect time. I've got to be the one who's in charge of my company, of my life, of, you know, my weight, of the way I look. There's never going to be the perfect time. So it's funny that people ask me how I lost 30 pounds in like three and a half months. I just said, I have to because I'm writing my own story. Nobody else is shoveling this stuff in my pie hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm the one doing it. And I stopped and all of a sudden things changed. And, you know, my productivity on my book, write your story. Don't don't let anybody else write your story. Write your own. Mm, thank you. And Joe, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, our podcast, after they get done listening to your awesome podcast, which, which like you said, yours, you get so into depth and I love the show, Pete. I'm so happy you invited me on. Thank you very much. But my show is the exact opposite. (laughs) If you want to just play and learn nothing about money every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, wherever finer podcasts like this one are sold uh, or listened to for free, uh, like this one, uh, stackingbenjamins.com. And you can look me up on Twitter. I'm average Joe money on Twitter. Cool. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? 
I think I'd tell people to do the same thing that I just challenged myself to do. Don't wait for somebody else to step forward and take control. If you're in control, you're far more likely to get what you want for yourself. Mm. Awesome. Joe, this has been so cool. Keep on rocking the podcast and all you're up to. Thanks a ton, Pete. Thanks again for having me. I really appreciated Joe's wisdom there. I also really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really dug what Joe had to say. Stop thinking that the trainers at work are the ones who are responsible for training you on your career. And I think that will resonate with you if you're listening to this podcast and it resonates with me. Yeah, take responsibility for that learning and then put it to work in ways that get you paid, in ways that make things more fun. And getting in the proactive driver's seat there makes a world of difference. So kudos already for you to listen to the show. Buttering up the listenership is always a good move, huh? And I think it's a wise one, honestly. So keep it up. Very cool. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items that we've referenced here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep197. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from folks like our very next guest. It's Mark Aramley. He invented the bed jet and he's got a thing or two to say about innovation and how to do it, how to get creative ideas and implement them and make it happen. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.